0: Hi there. Are you warm? Yeah, it's not warm out there. In here it is, though. Not too warm, though, otherwise you fall asleep. It's a fine line. Uh, How about those Bobcats on Friday night, right? Like, we owe you guys just a great congratulations for a fantastic season. Way to go, Bobcat men, football players. We're heartbroken with you, and uh, last week I called the NCAA and I got that playoff game moved to Friday night because it gets in the way of worship around here on Saturday nights. It's not really true. But I'm going to call the NCAA for reals uh, this week and talk to them about Sam Houston State not being a part of our playoff picture ever again. We just don't want to see them again. Guys, great. Season. We're real proud of you and we can't wait until next season. Good job. Uh, Ready for Christmas? Yeah, you're not really. I can tell. And it's just a couple of weeks away. And around here for these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're looking at the hope of Christmas time through the lens of the Psalms in the Old Testament of the Bible, kind of a unique take on the run-up to Christmas time, if you were here last weekend, you remember how we talked about how the only 100% reliable source of hope is God. That was kind of the bottom line of last weekend. The only 100% reliable source of hope is God. And we talked about how any time we or anyone else put our hope in the stuff of this world, we're going to be disappointed. That stuff's going to break, it's going to fall apart, and we're going to be real, real crushed as a result. We looked in the early part of Psalm chapter 80. If you have a Bible and wanna turn there, you're certainly welcome to get there. We're gonna be there in just a moment, Psalm chapter 80. We looked at the early part of that Psalm and we saw how that was very, very true. Israel had put their hope in things other than Yahweh, in sources other than God. They turned from Him. They were going about their own thing, going their own way, leaving God quite in the dust. They'd begun to trust in a whole bunch of things other than God, and as a result, things got real gnarly real fast, didn't they? The people of Israel were being carried off into exile. War was being waged in their backyards as well as their front yards. Their economy in Israel around the painting of Psalm 80 was in shambles. Costco's shelves were utterly bare. There were massive food shortages. Times were really, really tough because people had looked past and through Yahweh, the ever-faithful ever-present God of Israel, and they were trusting in all these human-made ventures. All of them, though, had fallen apart, which actually, and I know this is a little challenging to hear, it was a great thing, because all that hopelessness and everything that they had put their hope in falsely caused them to realize how broken the paths were that they were taking. And all that hopelessness caused the people of Israel to pray this very, very simple prayer of return, they call it, turn us again to yourself, O God. Turn us again to yourself, oh God. It's sort of a personal revival prayer. Turn me again to yourself, oh God. Turn me. Don't worry about the person sitting next to you, just like you and God. Turn me again to yourself, oh God. Start right here with me. And we see that prayer repeated again throughout Psalm chapter 80. And really it's a prayer of hopelessness in everything that Israel, or frankly Everything that anybody had been trusting in that wasn't God. So it's a prayer of hopelessness from one perspective as well as a prayer of hope from another because that meant that Israel and maybe some of us finally realized how lost and how hopeless they were apart from God. How lost and how hopeless we are when we put our hope in stuff of this world, stuff that isn't God. And hope is, we talked about last weekend, one of the most powerful forces in the whole universe. Hope is indeed one of the greatest gifts that God gives us. Hope can keep us going in the face of the most difficult circumstances in life. And at the same time, I'm with Henry Cloud who says, hope can keep us going and sometimes that's the problem. Hope can keep us going and sometimes that's the problem. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Very often what keeps people from seeing things as they really are, what keeps people from facing the cold, hard, brutal facts of reality is hope. Oftentimes it's really easy for people to suffer from a case of what Henry Cloud calls hope distortion. Hope distortion occurs when folks keep buying themselves more time and more time and more time, going in the same direction, down the same path that they've always been going down, wishing Really, that's all they're doing. They're just wishing that whatever broken thing it is that they're hoping in or hoping for will come to pass. It's like wishing on a star. How's that going for you? Now, in one sense, that's kind of what hope is. Hope is about holding on when things look really, really bad and sometimes being able to hold on for a long, long time. But I think there's this healthy tension that exists that we must maintain or else we'll never, ever face the harsh, brutal facts of reality. And we'll just resort to wishing I'm just wishing, which is why I think we must learn to live in what Jim Collins calls the Stockdale Paradox. You've heard of this? The Stockdale Paradox. The name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp in the throes of the Vietnam conflict, tortured over 20 times throughout his, get this, eight-year imprisonment. He was in prison from 1965 to 1973, and Stockdale lived out the entire war nearly, with no prisoners' rights, no set release date, no certainty as to whether or not he would even survive to see his family ever again. Not to mention, while he was in prison, he carried the very heavy load of commander, doing everything he could to create conditions that would increase the number of prisoners who would survive unbroken, while at the same time he was ever fighting this internal war against his captors and their attempts to use the prisoners for propaganda purposes. At one point, Admiral Stockdale, he beat himself with a stool, cutting his face with a razor, deliberately disfiguring himself so that he could not ever be captured on film as an example of a quote-unquote well-treated prisoner. He managed throughout his imprisonment to exchange secret intelligence information with his wife through letters that they wrote back and forth to each other, both of them knowing that the discovery of such would mean more torture, perhaps even the Admiral's death. But we know the end of the story, don't we? Admiral Stockdale, he made it out of that prisoner of war camp alive. He was indeed reunited with his wife, and he was the first three star officer in the history of the United States Navy to wear both aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor decorated spectacularly. In an interview, he was asked, how, Admiral, did you deal with the sense of hopelessness and despair while in the midst of brutal circumstances? And here's what he said. I never, ever lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining experience of my entire life, which he says in retrospect, and this is amazing, in retrospect, I would not trade. And then Stockdale was asked, well, who didn't make it out of that prisoner of war camp? He responded very quickly, that's easy. The optimists didn't make it out. The optimists didn't make it out it was the ones who said we're going to be out by christmas and christmas would come and christmas would go and they'd say well we'll be out by easter and easter would come and easter would go and then thanksgiving and then what do you know it was christmas time again and the optimists they just died off one by one by one died of broken hearts every single one of them the admiral recall and stockdale very emphatically declared this is a very important lesson and it is You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can, by the way, never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Don't ever confuse those two things. It's very, very powerful, isn't it? And you can almost hear Admiral Stockdale admonishing the optimist, we're not getting out by Christmas, now deal with it. We're not getting out by Christmas, now deal with it. But hope, especially false hope, often keeps people going, some of us even, down roads and paths and trails and tracks that are not even close to God's way, despite the crystal clear reality staring them right in the face, which is why I think there's a time and there's a place for actually getting hopeless. You might write that down. There's a time and there's a place for getting hopeless about the path you're on where the hope you're relying on is sourced in anyone or anything except for God himself. For example, a woman I know of, she finally got to a hopeless point in her marriage. She finally realized that all of her attempts to get her alcoholic husband to dry out were in no way working. She came to the moment that's so familiar to so many people where some of you know this moment, I'm done, ever been there? The I'm done kind of moment. She finally got there. In her heart and in her mind, their marriage was over. Divorce was the only option that was left on the table. And for this woman, that was actually quite a breakthrough because that woman had finally given up the hope that her plan that she'd been working for a couple of decades was gonna help her husband get well. And I'm telling you that this is so cool because that woman's hopelessness was also the moment of incredible hope in exactly what Jesus had in mind for her and her marriage to her husband. Thinking that the only option was for her to get a divorce. She sat down with an acquaintance of mine and she laid out her plan that she had been working for a couple of decades. She then laid out how all of that wasn't working. She then laid out her plan to divorce her husband. And my acquaintance interrupted her and said, You know, divorce might not be what Jesus wants for you and your husband either. Ever thought about that? And she had to sort of stare that in the face for a moment and what do you mean? He said, What if we developed a plan together? I've been working a plan what if we developed a different plan and you've been working for a couple of decades and she agreed sort of reluctantly but they implemented this plan that included a professional intervention it included the leverage of his other very significant relationships which he had a broad network of it included professional inpatient treatment as well as setting consequences real consequences for poor behavior and doggone it it worked that woman's husband went to rehab. He's sober. He's been sober for a long time. There's actual hope for their future. They're still going strong to this day, but it only came about, see, because she finally got hopeless about her ways of operating with her husband that were not God's ways. She was working plans, walking down paths that weren't even close to what God would have for her husband and her or their marriage. They weren't even close, but she was just grabbing stuff, trying stuff, And the nation of Israel, see, in the days of the pinning of Psalm chapter 80, they're right there. They had finally gotten hopeless about all their ways of operating that were not God's ways. Let's take this piece by piece. Psalm 80, starting in verse 7. Turn us again. Here's that prayer, this prayer of return. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. Make your face shine down upon us. Only then will we be saved. You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations. You transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us, and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. And the psalmist starts right there. Turn us again to yourself, O God of heaven's armies. That's staring reality right square in the face. That's the recognition Israel knew that the path thereon wasn't working. Otherwise, if you thought the path you were on were working, you wouldn't say, turn us again to yourself, oh God. You wouldn't say, we gotta go in a different direction, God. They knew they were headed in the wrong direction. They knew it, God knew it. Finally, they're getting hopeless. This is what it looks like to get hopeless. They were hopeless. And then from that harsh reality, the psalmist steps back quite a ways in history, actually, and sketches out God's redemptive story in and through his people, Israel. And he uses the metaphor of a grapevine. And he sets it up. He says, for starters, God brought the grapevine of Israel out of captivity in Egypt as a very tender shoot. And if you know anything about grapevines in the sacred text of God, you know they're absolutely treasured. Grapevines are absolutely treasured. Why are they treasured? Because they produce what? The fruit of the grapevine is a what? Yeah, one of you got it right. Grapevine. Grapes grow on grapevines. You guys are supposed to be better than the nine o'clockers. <laughs> grapes. I love grapes. So does God. And the psalmist is acknowledging grapes are highly treasured by God. Grapevines produce this delectable fruit... I'm getting to for the grape lovers in the room. I love grapes. One of my favorite fruits, quite amazing. And then sort of a secondary thing about grapes, one of the coolest features actually is when someone smashes them up and ferments them, their nectar is succulent beyond belief. At least that's what somebody told me once. Some of you just got that. The psalmist goes on then to describe how God expelled, cast out the other nations that were resident in the promised land. And he finally planted Israel in their rightful place, this place that he had carved out for them. And notice that God didn't just toss this treasured grapevine of Israel out onto the ground and expect them to sort of root themselves in and fend for themselves. Uh Uh-uh. They're way, way, way too treasured. So what's God do? We see You, God, transplanted us, transplanted us. If you think about transplanting a plant, you take great care in that process, don't you? You don't just pull it up and then go stick it in any random hole in the ground. You take great care, you dig it up carefully, you want the whole root ball to be entirely contained and then you move it carefully. You transplanted us, God, into your land. You cleared the ground, you prepped the soil and we took root and we filled the land he wanted, God wanted his people to be deeply rooted. And then as a result of all the care that God took with his precious nation, his precious people, Israel, look what happened. You transplanted us into your land and then these great things happened in the next section of scripture. Right here, 9 through 11, we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains. That's spectacular. Shade from a grapevine covering the Mountains. Our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea. Our shoots spread east to the Euphrates River. They filled the land. They were higher than even the cedars, which had been the tallest thing going, which means that Israel was the biggest deal going on planet Earth in their day. Well, those were the days, the psalmist says. Oh God, you have done amazing, spectacular things in our past. Those were... The days. And if you've ever found yourself in a ditch similar to the ditch that the nation of Israel finds themselves in in Psalm chapter 80, you know, you know very, very well how much the remarkable things that God's done in your past intensifies present anguish when things are not going well. You feel that, don't you? Some of you have story after story after story of all God's done in days and years past. And then some derailment strikes your life, strikes your world kind of out of nowhere even. And from your perspective, God's not helping anymore like he did back then. It's not getting better now like it used to get better. As a matter of fact, things might even be getting worse. And when you look back and you look on all those amazing things God's done in your past, it often makes the very painful things you're going through right now just seem magnified. The pain's just that much more great. Sure, God, nice of you to do all that great stuff back then, but where the heck are you now? The psalmist is crying. And some of us are crying that exact same thing. Where in the heck, God, are you now? Sure seems like you're nowhere near this mess I got working. And we're talking today about how sometimes in order to get hopeful about what it is that God wants and needs to do in us, first we have to get hopeless, remember, about the path we're on which is where the psalmist goes next. Psalm 80, 12 and 13. But now, why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? So there's this recollection of everything God did right up here in the text. And then the psalmist moves on, but now, and those are powerful words, why have you broken down our walls so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The luscious, delectable grapes, they're going away. No more wine for us. The wild boar from the forest devours it, all of that fruit, and the wild animals feed on it. And you see what the psalmist is doing there. There's a very technical theological term for it it's a C word. He's complaining. That's, exa- that's actually what it's called theologically it's a complaint to God. He's complaining. On one hand, from God, you did such amazing things, you took such amazing care of your treasured grapevine, Israel, to now, God, you've broken down our walls, our fruit is being pillaged, the psalmist is complaining, and you can take this complaint a couple of different ways. The first one is to understand it from the perspective of the psalmist not getting God's judgment. They just don't get it. I don't get it, God. Everything was so wonderful over here. The vine was expanding. Things were going steeply up and to the right, which is the way we all like things to go. Everything was fantastic. And then like out of nowhere, God, you broke down our walls. You stole our priceless fruit, blaming God. So that's the first way you can take this complaint. The second way you can take this complaint is that while the psalmist is understanding of God's original judgment, like, okay, we messed up, we deserved it, He all of a sudden now is beginning to question and thus complain about why is God your judgment still happening? Why? Why is your judgment still so harsh? Why is your judgment not wrapped up yet? I'm ready to get on, God, to the next thing, being successful. And no matter which way you take the complaint, the bottom line is still the same. For Israel and for some of us, our hearts are still very far from God. We haven't got the message that the judgment was intended to pronounce on us, just like Israel still hadn't got the message. Some of us and the nation of Israel in Psalm chapter 80, they're thinking that with just a few tweaks of the dials, just a couple of very minor course corrections, things aren't all that bad, I'll just sort of tweak it up a little bit and maybe inject a little Jesus into this mess and things are going to be back to up and to the right. God's going to all of a sudden be real happy with me but that's not how it works because if that's the plan that you're working like Israel was trying to work what that means is your heart still isn't convinced that God is the only authentic true source of hope Israel was still looking around at all the broken stuff around them going like well I, I kind of like to hope here and I can and some of us do the exact same thing we know we know it's God we know it's only God but then we're, we're gonna work this plan and we're gonna work that plan and God, you're just kind of like a dollop of whipped cream on top of my pretty good life. Just like Israel, some of us haven't gotten fully hopeless in the hopelessness of the broken past that they've elected to walk down again and again and again. And just to set the record straight, it wasn't God who had broken down the walls. It wasn't God. We talked a little bit about this last week. God, yes, allows hard stuff, but he doesn't cause hard hard stuff. It wasn't God who tore down the wall around Israel. It wasn't God who ran in like a thief and stole those luscious grapes. God was not the wild pig who came in and scarfed up the fruit. God was not any of the other wild animals who heard on Twitter that there were easy pickings in Israel and ran over for a quick bite. That wasn't God and the tension is that God allowed all that to happen. By the way, that's not a real pig, that's not real wild animals that the psalmist is talking about there. Symbolism. The psalmist is using symbolism to talk about all of the other nations, some of them likened unto pigs, because why? They're unclean, who are coming to pillage Israel. And the psalmist is saying, look, God, catastrophe has come on us. And it's just going on and on and on and some of us say that exact same thing. God, catastrophe has come on me and it just goes on and on and on and on. And God, isn't it time? Isn't it time for you to step in and take care of this? Look at Psalm 80, 14 to 16. Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's armies. What's implicit in that is Israel definitely doesn't get it. Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's armies, really. Can you sort of envision God sitting there with his arms crossed, kind of like, I-, I didn't go anywhere. I'm God and I'm still right here. It's you, Israel. It's you, Brian, who went somewhere, who turned your back on me, whose heart got hard toward me. God's going, I, I don't need to come back anywhere. I- I'm here. You, maybe some of you, need to come back. Look down from heaven and see our plight. And God already sees it, doesn't he? He's looking on it. He's watching it. He's intimately involved with you in it. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted. He's reminding God, remember God how good a care you took of your grapevine, could you get back to that? You planted us, this son you have raised up for yourself. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week. For we are, get this, chopped up and burned by our enemies. May they perish at the sight of your frown. And what we see again and again and again throughout this psalm is that God wants people to know that you can find all of your hope in him. You don't need to look anywhere else. Stop looking anywhere else. Stop looking at anyone else or anything else as your source of hope. We can find all our hope in the capital G gardener, the one who takes such great care of his grapevine, his treasured people, not just Israel but us, to this very day. But see, what's at the core of our ability to place our hope in him is this loud, clear understanding that the other paths that we're on are hopeless, and also that God indeed knows what he's doing. All those other paths, they're hopeless, and God again and again and again knows What he's doing. Because you see, you read down through Psalm 80 and you see how bad things were and you see how nations are overrunning Israel and the psalmist who's writing that, there's resident inside there this sense, God, do you really know what you're doing? Because it kind of seems like you don't. We're being, God, chopped up and burned here. Do you really know what you're doing? God, and the answer is yes. God absolutely and always knows what he's doing. Some people Maybe some of us, we look at the circumstances God's allowed in our lives and we go, God, do you really know what you're doing? Because this seems way too hard. I can't bear up under this. This is way too challenging. The mountain's too steep. God, are you sure? But the answer is he knows precisely what it is that he's doing. Because you see, this isn't just some little plan that he whipped up last night. That he's unfolding in our lives. God has had this plan from eternity past. And it's a plan that involved calling a vine up out of nothing. Read Genesis chapter 12 when it all started with a guy named Abram. And God looks down and taps Abram on the shoulder. And says, Abram, you go. And you can just sort of envision Abram going like, where am I going, God? God. And God was like, well, you just go. You don't need to know where. You just go, and what do you know? Abram went. He heard God, and he responded. He heard God, and he obeyed, and that's where it all started, And eventually God chose this good soil, he made the soil even better, he planted Israel in the promised land, he made provision for the birth of his son Jesus Christ, the one and only son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world, made provision for his life and his death, his burial, his resurrection, he made provision for the sending of the Holy Spirit of God, for the establishment of his church even. Every bit of it laid out from before the beginning of time. God has and has had a plan from the choosing of his vine to the nourishing and to the sustaining of the vine. Get this, and this is a hard one to hear all the way because none of us like this P word, the pruning of the vine. None of us like to be pruned. But sometimes that's exactly what we need. God has a plan and is in the process of fulfilling his plan. And his plan involves our full hope being rightly placed in him and in him alone, the sovereign, supreme God of the universe. The one who made you, the one who made me, the one who loves you, the one who breathed life into you and every single thing, and I mean every single thing he's doing in you, he's doing for the purpose of growing you, growing me, just like a gardener grows a trellis full of grapes in a vineyard. Whatever it is that's going on in your life and it, It's hard, I know it's hard. Rest assured, it is part of God's forever eternal plan. He does have a plan and a purpose for you. He does love you. He has not left you. Nothing is an accident in God's economy. You were chosen. You were chosen from before the foundation of the world. And he chose this place to plant you. He made it his mission to guide you to him. He gave you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you his church. And he's working out this plan so that you might be everything that he's made you to be. That you might reach your full redemptive potential, not in hopeless stuff, but in him. But see, our hope in the capital G, Gardener, God, It all begins by our turning to God's provision of salvation that was provided by Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. It starts with us getting real hopeless about all those paths that we're taking that aren't God's. It's about trusting him with our everything, all the way down to him being the savior of your soul. Do you trust him that much? To let him be the savior of your soul? Your soul, to make him the boss of your life. I'm gonna ask you to set your things aside if you would and move into a posture of prayer and listening to him. What is it that you need to get hopeless about today? What counterfeit source of hope have you been sort of wishing in, wishing on? Most of us, it's real easy what it is. just It's just right there because we know. Nobody has to tell us. We don't have to dig around in our soul for it. We just know. Could I just invite you in this time, use it to transact this hard business that you need to do with God. Starting with confessing to him, God, I've put hope in this broken, fallen stuff and I need to confess that to you. I need to repent. I need to turn from it. And then once you've done that this sort of confession cleanup, tell him that you're all done trusting in anything hoping in anything but him. You're shutting that door of false hope. You're turning the page on that false hope. You're closing the book entirely on that path that isn't God's path you're all done and you can just make this a time of driving a stake in the ground this new commitment this fresh declaration to God that you're getting hopeless about all the broken stuff that you've been hoping in and you're coming home You're coming home to the sovereign, supreme God of the universe who is 100% trustworthy, who will not let you down, who will be your hope again and again and again and again. And God wants every single one of us to know today that his offer of love and salvation and forgiveness His offer of eternal forever hope stands wide open to all of us today. The hope that lets you live in harmony with God, it stands wide open to you today. And maybe as you examine your life, you know that you're not in harmony with God's life. The invitation to you today is to take that step of saving hope in God once and for all. To say, God, I I get it. I need a savior and if that's the desire of your heart I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and pray with me a prayer that goes like this Jesus thank you thank you for coming and thank you for dying on the cross for me and Jesus I'm giving up I'm confessing all those broken paths that I've been on and I'm here and now once and for all going your way Asking you to be my savior, asking you to be my boss. With all the faith, God, I can muster in this moment, I'm turning my life over to you. And if you're stepping into that saving hope in Jesus Christ today, that's the single biggest decision of your whole life. It's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision and I'm gonna ask you to do that with me right now. Nobody's looking around, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you prayed with me just then to step into the saving hope of God, would you be real bold right now and slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just let me say yes with you. You can do that right now. Just let me say yes with you. In the back, absolutely. I see you to my right, yes. And here, right here, absolutely, yes. Over here, to my left, absolutely. Way to go. I affirm that. I stand with you in your decision to follow Jesus, yes. And there in the back, absolutely, yes. I'm standing with you. Jesus, thank you for these who are choosing you today, who are choosing eternal hope in you. The only all reliable source of hope. We praise you, God. We celebrate their life that's new and fresh and vibrant in you. And Jesus, I pray for all of us that we would just be, we would just have a distaste for the stuff that isn't of you, these counterfeit hope sources in this world. That we just wouldn't go there, that we'd run to you every time, all day long. you're worthy, God, of all our hope. You're worthy of all our hope. And so we trust you. We trust you with our souls and we trust you with all of our lives that you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing, God. And we worship you.